0: Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 20. We're into a new a new chapter. Jesus tells a number of parables throughout his ministry, and parables are used to illustrate spiritual truth. We can know God by analogy. And so a parable has a two a twofold purpose. A parable is a story told to explain spiritual truth. Its purpose, its intention is, number one, to reveal it to people who have a heart to understand and to conceal it from people who don't truly want to have a relationship with God. So its intention is to both conceal and reveal. That being the case, we come to a parable this morning that is, I would argue, the most challenging of all of the parables and uh, the most difficult to, to interpret. So, I'm not going to read it. We're going to walk through it bit by bit. We're going to just go straight to prayer and ask the Lord to help us to open our minds to understand that His Spirit would illuminate the text. So, Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 16. Before we do, it would really be in our best interests to pause for a moment and ask the Lord to help us. So, let's pray. Father, we do ask you by your Spirit, Lord, by the righteousness of Christ, that your Spirit, which indwells us, would shine upon the text before us this morning. Lord, this is a, a challenging parable, particularly in the context in which it comes. Father, many have been confused. Many have made some wrong conclusions based on what this parable on the surface appears to be saying. And So Lord, we just pray that you would help us this morning to see everything that you're saying in totality. And we pray, Lord, that you'd open our minds and our hearts to see the true depth of your grace and your goodness as we look at this parable this morning. We love you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I preached on uh, the tail end of the section with regards to the rich young ruler. A rich man approaches Jesus and he says, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And and Jesus essentially tells him, if you want to be perfect, if you want to go to eternal life, take all of your wealth and all of your money, sell it, give it to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And of course, the rich man walks away very upset because he can't make that trade. He is in love with his money more than he is in love with following Jesus. And so Jesus then turns and he begins to have this dialogue with the disciples in which Peter asks Jesus the question. He says, look, we've left everything to follow you. Everything we've left, everything behind. What then is there going to be for us? To which Jesus answers Peter and he says, I tell you the truth, if you've left houses or lands, mothers or fathers, sisters or brothers, if you've left... uh, anything behind for the sake of my name, for the sake of following me in the regeneration, okay, the ESV translates it in the new heavens, new world that's not a correct translation Paligenesis from the Greek preposition palin, verb genomai, the regeneration the, re, the physical resurrection in that you will, be re- you will be rewarded a hundredfold many times many times over, anything that you have left behind you will receive many times over In the regeneration. He makes this statement at the tail end of chapter 19. He says, For many who are last, for for many who are first will be last, and the last first. And given the context in which he makes that statement, talking about the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler's inability to do away with his money in order to follow Jesus, we understand that the assessment of this world is incorrect. People who appear to be doing well, people who appear to be number one, as it were, in the Lord's eyes are not number one at all. In fact, in the Lord's eyes, because the rich young man wouldn't follow the Lord, that makes him dead last. Involved in that is the promise of reward for those who would follow Jesus, which the question comes, Clay Camp, do you really believe That Jesus will reward us if we follow him. Do you really believe that? Yes, I do. But wait just one second. What about the parable that comes right after? Which I admit is a difficult parable. And on the surface, it seems to completely reject the idea that Jesus has just stated plainly that if we follow him, we will be rewarded. So we're going to walk through this. It begins in verse 1. Jesus makes a statement. You'll notice he starts off with four, which means that everything he's about to say connects with what he has just got done saying. And what he's just gotten done saying is, if you follow me, anything that you've had to lose, in order to follow me, you get it a hundredfold. Now he tells this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. It's an agrarian economy. Everybody makes their living based on farming. It's a tough life. It's not like banker's hours. These guys work 12-hour days. The Jewish day starts at 6 a.m. They get up, they go to work, and they're going to put in a full 12-hour days. They're going to work till 6 p.m. I mean, they're working Dustin Savage-type hours, okay? Just put that out there for those of you who are going to be praying for him this week. These guys work a full day, they work all day, and they're not doing really well financially. The, the, the people who are discussed in this parable don't have their own farm. So the farmer, the guy who actually owns the field, he comes out and he needs to hire some day laborers, okay, in order to help him pick the, the grapes, the produce, from his vineyard. So, verse 2, After engaging with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So this is at the start of the day, 6 a.m. Verse 3, Going out about the third hour, about 9 9 a.m. in the morning, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And this is a common phenomenon. So these are guys that need something to do. They need work. They're not employed. They don't own their own land they need to provide for their family, they need to pay the rent, they need to put food on the table, and so you go and you'd stand in the marketplace, and you would offer your services to anybody who happened to be bringing goods to and from the market, and a lot of times farmers would go to the marketplace looking for day laborers in order to help them pick their fields or to manage their crops. And so he goes to the marketplace, and he sees these guys standing there, and he makes a statement. Verse 4, he said to them, you, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. Now, the guys that showed up at 6 a.m. to work, they get in denarius. The guys that show up at 9 a.m., he doesn't say anything about what they're going to get paid. He just says, once you go into the vineyard, whatever is right, I'll give it to you. And this process keeps going. Verse 5, so they went. And going out again about the 6th hour, so this would be about noon. And again at the ninth hour, that's about 3 p.m., he found others, and he said to them, "Why do you stand here idle all day?" And they said to him, "Because no one has found, no one has hired us." And he said, "Well, you go into the vineyard too." Verse eight. And when evening came, the owner of the foreman said, "the, the owner said to his foreman, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up until the first.'" Now, you'll notice in verse six, I skipped over it quickly, but you'll notice in verse six, he makes a statement. And about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., these guys only worked one hour. They worked from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. The guys that showed up at 6 a.m., he says to them, you go into the field and you work a good, long, hard day's work. You go, to six, you go 12 hours, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., give you a denarius. Everybody else, you come, you work, I give you what's right. Guys work one hour. He says, you go, you work. I'll give you what's right. Okay? So then he says to his manager, the the owner of the vineyard comes out. He calls the foreman. calls the manager. calls the guy who's running the the work crew, the work party, so to speak. Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. Verse 9. When those hired at the 11th hour, okay, they're only in the fields for one hour. They are the last guys to go. He calls them. He says, you come, you get paid first. And what does he give them? Verse 9, each of them received a denarius. Now, you'll recall, when he called the guys at 6 a.m., he said, I'll give you a denarius. Everyone else, he said, I'll give you what is right. So these guys that only worked one hour, they get paid a denarius. They get paid first. So if you're the guy that showed up at 6 a.m., I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, the reason he's paying... The guys who only worked one hour first, they go home. They get their money. They leave because obviously, I mean, he's gonna pay us more than we paid Deb because we've been here all day. That's why they get paid first. Get them out the door. Get them on their way, and something good's coming for us because we've been here all day. It's hot. It's tiring. Back-breaking work. My grandfather was a farmer, and uh, farmers don't farm. Because the pay is so great. I just want to dispel that myth right now. Farmers farm because they love farming. Because the exertion and the energy and the labor that goes into farming is so intensive. Somebody at some point in time did a calculation it's not minimum wage what you're earning at the end of the day. When you sell your crops, when you sell your cattle, you get rid of your livestock. You bring home your money. At the end of the day, you're not even making minimum wage. The hours, the energy, the effort that goes into it. My grandfather was a farmer. And he would be the first to tell you, I got up at 4 a.m. And I worked until 6 p.m. He made the statement to me one time, shortly before he died. He said, the greatest blessing that ever came to a farmer was the invention of the incandescent light bulb. And then he said this. And oh, how I hated it. More work. That means there's no point in time in which you can say, I can't see anymore. I need to go to bed. You can just feel the guilt of needing to get the crops in all through the night. And uh, he, he said that to me and encouraged me not to take up farming, which was fine because I didn't really want to be a farmer anyway. So this is farmers. So these guys are coming. It's dirty. It's hot. It's sweaty. They've been picking grapes. Gonna get something good, more a denarius, that's for sure. And we were thinking we were only gonna get a denarius. Now, when those hired first, verse ten, came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Verse eleven, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, "These last," referring to the guys that showed up at five p.m., "these last guys worked only one." hour they were only here for an hour and you just know some of them were saying and that one guy he was a slacker he mostly just wandered around and pretended like he was doing something he wasn't doing anything we've been here all day okay the exact expression we have borne the burden of the day the burden of being here the whole time and he says that the workers say to the guy you have made them equal to us You have made them the same as us. Now, the master of the vineyard, verse 13, he replied to one of them. Notice his response. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? We started the day. I said I'd give you a denarius and you said done deal and that's what I gave you. Take what belongs to you and go in other words there's no more money coming i told you i'd give you a denarius you got your denarius that's what we agreed i'm being fair this is the deal out the door be on your way take your money i choose to give to this last worker as i give to you in other words, the guy that showed up at 5 p.m., worked one hour, and even the guy that wandered around for 45 minutes pretending like he was doing something and didn't really do anything, if I want to give him a denarius, the guy wandering around pretending to work, and I give you a denarius, that's what I want to do, then that's what I want to do. Verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose to? with what belongs to me which is a rhetorical question saying no like it's your money you can do whatever you want and he goes further and he says do you begrudge my generosity now in verse 1 Jesus begins this parable and he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Now the word for means that what he's about to say ties back to what he's just gotten done saying. And then he repeats verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. Which is to say that what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 to 16 is a direct expansion upon what he has just said in chapter 19 verse 30. So now you're sitting here and you're saying, okay, Based on the parable, it sounds like what Jesus is saying, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It doesn't really matter what you do even if you don't even bother to serve, even if you only show up at the last five seconds of the day and just put in the minimal effort, it sounds like what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of heaven is basically, you just show up at some point in time for the kingdom of heaven, even if you don't give it your best effort, even if you don't put in a full day's work, you just show up at some point in time, and you get the same thing as everybody else, which means that if people make the decision to follow Christ, if people make the decision at a very young age, and they They really, you know, they decide they're gonna do something really great and noble and heroic like go to some faraway country maybe go be a missionary like Lisa Purdy to Istanbul, Turkey, maybe put themselves in harm's way for the sake of the gospel. If they do something like that, then it sounds like people who just show up for the last five seconds and put in the minimal effort get the exact same blessing and the exact same reward as the people who put in the maximum effort, who sacrifice everything and who follow Christ with a whole heart, totally devoted. Is it true that what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that everybody gets the same thing no matter what? The problem, if you take that interpretation, is that what he has just said to Peter, without parable, without allegory, without any kind of an analogy, is that if you sacrifice for Christ, you receive a hundredfold. Then he tells this parable. Now we need to remember that parables are intended to conceal truth as well as reveal truth. When looking at parables, it's important to remember that Christ is talking to a wide audience of individuals a wide group. He's not just talking to the disciples, there are others who are listening to him. We need to understand that because parables have the dual purpose of concealing truth as well as revealing truth, sometimes we need to be cautious in the way that we approach our interpretation. I want you to stick your finger there, and I want you to go with me over to 1 Corinthians. The question that we're facing is, you know, If we surrender everything and follow Christ, does that mean anything? Is there any reward in that? Is there any kind of blessing in that? Or or can we just basically live our lives however we want, as long as we believe in Jesus, kind of make some sort of half-hearted attempt, go to church or whatever, we're going to heaven. 1 Corinthians is not like the parable in Matthew 20. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, is writing explicitly. The difference between 1 Corinthians and the Gospel of Matthew, in terms of what Jesus is saying here in this parable, is he is making an analogy. Paul is doing no such thing. Paul, in talking to the church at Corinth, he is being very explicit and very literal, which means that if we want to be systematic in our approach to Scripture... If we want to understand that God never contradicts himself, he never says one thing over here and then says something totally different over here, we need to look at the totality of the book and understand that it all comes together to form a harmony, that there are no contradictions. So we look at 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn there with me, chapter 3. And I want you to look at verse 10. Paul planted the church at Corinth, and he's going to make this very profound statement. According to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and now someone else is building upon it. Let each person take care how he builds upon the foundation, okay? Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, okay? Everything we do has to be built upon Christ and what he did for us on the cross. There's no deviating from that. So when we build, when we serve, when we sacrifice, it has to be for the sake of Christ, to the glory of his name, in faithfulness to him. Verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, which all sound lovely. What he's about to say next is different. If anyone builds with gold or precious stones or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become Manifest, Or to put it another way, each one's work will become obvious. How is that? For it will be revealed by fire. Each one's work will become manifest. The day, the day of judgment will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each person has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. Now notice that, verse 14. Paul's intention here, he's not clouding it, he's not being ambiguous, he's not trying to paint a picture, he's not using analogies, he's not using object illustrations. He's being very explicit. You build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, there's a day of judgment coming, the Lord will test your work. If the work is good, if the work survives, his statement in verse 14 is explicit, he will receive a reward. To which now, if we don't go any further, we just stop there. We have in our mind the parable from Matthew chapter 20. We say, yeah, he gets a reward if it survives, and we all get rewards. It doesn't really matter if we build with hay or straw or stubble. We're all getting the same thing. Notice what Paul says next. Verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, notice it now, he will suffer loss. Oh, dear. Does that mean we don't go to heaven? No, 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 no. Hear him all the way through. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Which means you come to the regeneration. If you have been faithful to serve the Lord, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians is, if you have sacrificed, if you have given, then everything that Jesus said at the tail end of Matthew chapter 19 is true. Anything you've sacrificed in order to follow Christ, when he says he's going to repay you a hundredfold, he means it. Paul affirms it. If in our service to Christ, we don't give from the heart true service, if it's just sort of a lip service or or if the motivation of our heart is to really, truly bring honor and glory to ourselves when we serve in the church, if we want people to applaud us and say what great people we are, rather than getting them to focus on the Lord if our motivation is wrong, we suffer loss. And the statement is you'll still be saved, you'll still go to heaven, but you'll look back on the life of service that you're serving for Christ and you won't have anything to show for it. So you can serve the Lord and be rewarded and you can still be saved and going to heaven having not served the Lord and there will be no reward. So the interpretation of this parable in Matthew in Matthew chapter 20 that what Jesus is saying is that we all get the same thing no matter what is not entirely accurate. Other scholars have offered other interpretations. The other most common interpretation of this parable is that what Jesus is referring to here is the difference between Israel and the Gentiles. Remember, Israel had been called by God from the moment that Abraham was called out to go settle in a new land. He said, I promise you, talking to Abraham... Through your descendants, I will bless the nations of the earth. And, of course, Abraham had Isaac and so forth and so on. Then we have the whole nation of Israel that comes into existence. And, of course, Jesus ministering in Israel, he's talking to people who are very proud of the fact that they're Jews. They're very proud of the fact that they're Israelites. They believe that God has specially chosen them, which is true. But they believe that because of their priority in time, because God chose them way back when in Genesis, that that makes them better than everyone else. And so the other interpretation of this parable is that what Jesus is saying is there is no priority in time. It doesn't matter whether you were the first to trust in Jesus or whether somebody has come after and trusted in Jesus much later on. What Jesus is saying is that the two are equal. That even though the Israelites were first and then the gospel moved to the Gentiles, it doesn't make the Gentiles any less inferior than the Jews. They follow Jesus. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Is that the correct interpretation of the parable? Again, I'm not entirely sure. Another version of that same type of interpretation is that you have young believers, individuals who come to faith in the Lord, say when they're six or seven years old, and you find them as a 22-year-old or a 23-year-old young man, faithful, active, serving the church. And then you have other believers who are much, much older, say they're 50 or 60 years old, 70 years old, that as a result of their age, as a result of their years of experience going around the sun more times than us, that they might tend to think of themselves as being better in some way or wiser in some way than the younger Christians. And so what Jesus is teaching here is that that's not true. There is no priority in time. Now, to both of those types of interpretations. I, I-, I want to say that they're, they're both very valid thoughts, but again, I'm not certain that that's really what Jesus is saying here in this parable. To the first, you'll recall Peter in the book of Acts, he, uh, he, he's preaching the gospel, people are getting saved, and he's up on the rooftop of his house, taking a little siesta, taking a little nap in the middle of the day, and God comes to him in the form of a dream, and he's, he lowers the sheep down from heaven, and it's got snakes and filthy, creepy, crawly creatures in it, and God says to him, take and eat Peter, and Peter's like, no way, I'm not eating that, I have never touched anything like that in my whole life, I'm pure, I'm a Jew, I live for you, Lord, and the Lord says, don't call impure or common what God has made holy, take and eat. And Peter's like, eh. He's like, take and eat. So he eats it. Well, then he wakes up and some guys show up and they're like, hey, we need you to come with us to talk to a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And immediately Peter understands the purpose of the dream. God is getting ready to begin bringing in Gentiles by the masses into the kingdom of God. So he goes with these guys. He goes, he visits Cornelius, and it's recorded for us in Acts. Don't flip there, just listen. He shows up at Cornelius' house, and Cornelius says, hey, I need you to tell me about the gospel. I need you to tell me about the kingdom of heaven. And Peter makes the statement, truly I understand now that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So the idea that the Gentiles... Are somehow inferior to the Jews is totally blown away. That thought is a good thought. All those who embrace Christ are equal. All those who embrace Christ are brothers. Okay, what about the other idea? That this is somehow a rebuke against older saints in the church thinking that somehow they're better than younger saints? I don't think that this passage is a rebuke against older saints in the church versus younger saints. It just doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything in that passage that would make that explicit connection. Now, it is certainly true that we are all brothers. It's important to remember that the Bible says you will honor your father and your mother and you will respect your elders. Gray hairs are the crown of wisdom. We absolutely should respect older saints in the church. They are wiser, they are more experienced. We need to remember that. We need to appreciate that. We need to celebrate that and honor that. At the same time, you'll recall from the book of Job, Job has his house destroyed, his kids killed, his finances taken, his health taken. He's basically in a pile of ashes with bleeding sores, and his three best friends come to him and say, you're clearly a sinner. You wouldn't be experiencing all of this horror if you didn't sin against God. And Job was like, eh, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I'm pretty sure I'm, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty sure I'm not a horrible sinner to deserve all of this. And they kept at it, and they kept at it, and they kept at it. And Elihu, the young guy, comes along, and he says to these three supposedly older, wiser guys, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Therefore I say, listen to me, and let me also declare my opinion to you. We absolutely should respect the older saints. We should respect mother and father. And at the same time, the truth that just because you're older in the church doesn't necessarily make you better, doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're any wiser than younger saints, that's a valid thought. But is that really what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 20? Again, I don't think so. Look back at the text with me. I want to draw your attention to one very important detail. Verse 2 after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day. Jesus has talked about rewards before. We've looked at it. When Jesus tells parables or when Jesus talks about giving rewards, you'll notice he uses big sums of money, like talents. Which is like 10,000 denarius. You notice that when Jesus says to Peter, if you follow me and you sacrifice everything, you're going to receive a hundredfold, that's a lot. We don't really know what that means, but it's a lot, big sum, lots of money. In this particular parable, Jesus talks about a vineyard owner who contracts with laborers for a denarius. So you're probably asking yourself, okay, that seems to be a crucial detail. How much is a denarius worth? It's barely minimum wage. It's enough for them to go home and buy food. It's enough for them to go home and buy dinner, to feed their families. Probably not enough to pay for clothes, probably not enough to put a roof over their head, to pay the rent. We're talking about a very small amount of money the owner of the vineyard goes and gets everybody to come to work. And at the end of the day, the guy that even worked one hour, even the loafer who maybe was just wandering around for 45 minutes pretending to work when he actually did nothing, the owner of the vineyard gives him what he needs to go home and provide for his family the whole thrust of the parable is intended to show us that when it comes to our service to the king, it is wrong to interpret that or to understand that in any sort of a contractual type of way. He, on the basis of grace, gives the loafer that shows up for one hour of work the same thing that that guy will need in order to survive as the guy that shows up at 6 a.m. And of course, the the guys that showed up at 6 a.m., they look at him and they say, hey, whoa, hey, we worked longer. We did more. We deserve more. And the vineyard owner's response is no, 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 no. We agreed for this amount. I'm not wronging you, What business is it to you if I want to be generous with the guy that showed up for only 45 minutes of work? What business is it to you if I want to make sure that this guy has enough money to eat, provide for his family, just for tonight? What business is that to you? And then he makes a statement, do you begrudge my generosity? That's his statement there at the very end. Do you begrudge my generosity? The whole point of the parable is that God doesn't deal with us according to what we deserve. And all of us in this moment should be saying, amen. Because if we all step back and we say, well, look, what do I really deserve? If we all take stock, if we were all to step back and say, hey, if I take all of my good stuff that I've done and I put it up against all of my bad stuff that I've done and I'm just trying to balance the scales in the same sort of way that Muslims do. If I'm going to balance the scales in, term, in the same sort of way that Hindus do or Buddhists, if we're going to look at our good and our bad, we're going to put it on a scale and say, What do I really deserve? What have I really earned? The truth is, you got nothing. You've earned nothing. You deserve nothing. God is saying to us, I choose to bestow grace upon you. I willingly give you what you don't deserve, and I don't give you what you do deserve, which means entirely based upon God's grace, entirely based upon what Jesus does on the cross, all of us get to go to heaven. If we would hope in the salvation that Christ offers us, which means our entrance into heaven is entirely an act of grace. And the wickedness that Christ is warning against is once we receive the invitation, once we believe in what Christ has done for us on the cross to go to heaven, that we should so quickly take... Sorry, I'm suffering from a cold and I'm struggling to get through it. That we should so quickly take grace and turn it into a quid pro quo. That we should so quickly take grace... And turn it into a contractual relationship where we look to the Father and we say, well, I've done this and this and this, therefore you owe me this and this and this. And what Jesus is saying here to the disciples is, yes, if you follow me, there is reward. Yes, if you follow me, there is blessing. But don't take that truth and then think, at the end of the day, that following Christ, sacrificing for the King, somehow or in some way puts him in your debt because it never does. Our entire relationship with the Father, even the privilege of serving him and sacrificing for him, even the privilege of lifting high his name and declaring the gospel to the ends of the earth is entirely a gift from start to finish. If we embrace the truth of eternal rewards, which that is true, the temptation that confronts all of us is that in the church, we will start to compare ourselves to one another. And we will say, well, I'm doing this and this and this, and that person over there isn't doing Which means I'm probably better off and more rewards are waiting for me in heaven than that guy. You are not the person to make that decision. You are not the person to make that judgment. But what's more important is that you have abandoned the concept of grace in forming that opinion. We cannot let that be our attitude. God wants us to understand something. And Jesus tells us this parable because he wants us to understand something, but it's something that we often miss, particularly when we do make the decision to follow, to surrender, to serve, to sacrifice, to follow Christ, to build his kingdom, to work in his church. It's the idea that from start to finish, it's all in grace, which is why Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, that's his prayer. Right now, pretty much all of us, most of us anyway, we're probably saving for retirement, putting a little money in an RRSP or mutual funds or something like that, working at a job that has a pension. And we're looking forward to it. A day that is coming in which I don't have to get up and do the 9 to 5, I can spend my time in any way that I please and enjoy myself in any manner that I want, retirement It's a beautiful thing. This might come as a surprise to some of you. But in all the work that the Father does, in the creation of the earth till now and in the time to come, He is working, just like you and me, for a retirement. There's something He wants. And we focus on ourselves and get this idea that we're going to work and we're going to do this or that and the other and, and that's going to put the Father in our debt and he's going to have to reward us and, and that would be good because, whoa, look at me, look at the stockpile of money I've got, look at the stockpile of riches and all the crowns on my head and however else you want to interpret it. And we've missed it. We've missed what the Father's heart truly is. He's working for a retirement. As glorious as the Father is, he, As awesome as he is, his heart isn't to necessarily just make himself look all that more glorious or add all these extra crowns to his head, per se. I mean, he can create just with a word. He can speak things into existence. The thing that he's working for, the retirement he is seeking, is you. I don't mean y'all in the plural, I mean you individually. What the Father wants is you. What he is seeking for all of eternity is to spend time with you. We get so focused on rewards and inheritances and earning certain status in heaven and all these things that we forget that the purpose of all of it is that we would be with the Father and enjoy him. Paul makes this prayer in Ephesians. Boy, do we need to pray this prayer ourselves. He says, I pray for you that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you would really know what that is, that you would know What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Don't gloss over that too quickly and don't try to rephrase it in your own mind. Hear what the passage is saying. Paul is saying, I pray for you that you would know what God's inheritance is in you. I pray that having... The eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Does he want you to be blessed? Absolutely. Does he want you to be happy? Absolutely. Does he want you to do things for the sake of his kingdom, knowing that those things will bring you the ultimate joy and the ultimate reward and the ultimate blessing? absolutely all of that is true but the thing we can never lose sight of the thing that should be our focus and our joy is that we are with the father and that he wants to be with us let's bow for a word of prayer